everyone. Uh, I'm Danny, compulsive overeater. I guess I'm also anorexic bulimic. I have the whole uh, spectrum, spectrum as it were. I think I'm nervous because like there's people listening who aren't in this room um, and that makes me a little nervous. But I have to remember that I have been here 33 years. 33 years. Um, I have been here more than half my life. Um, I was thinking about this and was reminded uh, of that To Sir With Love song. Um, How do you thank someone who has taken you from rag dolls to perfume? I don't wear perfume, but I uh, very much feel that Overused Anonymous um, has saved my life, has shaped my life, continues to do that. Um, I don't want to get too emotional, but everything I have in my life of value and that moves me is a function of working this program. So, uh, can't really overstate that enough. And um, so I'll just do a traditional share of, uh, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Um, I was in a meeting the other morning and someone was going into real detail about the food. And thank you for sharing your specific abstinence because I think it's just funny and great. Um, that And they were going on and on about the food. And there's a lot of meetings where it's like, well, we're not going to talk about the food. Really? Because I think you have to talk about the food. <laughs> um, so I so appreciate uh, that this is Overeaters Anonymous. Like if we could manage food and our food behavior, we'd be in a different program. But this is Overeaters Anonymous. So I think we have to talk about, you know, the substance. Um, so, okay. So what it was like, um, I am, have come to discover, I think I was like born an overachiever. And I think that the environment that I was born into kind of nurtured that aspect of my personality, but I do think that cellularly, like, I have a real need to be the best. And, you know, how that translated as I matured is, like, the thinnest. Like, if you're going to, you know, like, all of that perfectionism, which I would have said probably even five years ago, well, I'm not perfect enough to really define myself as a perfectionist. Things should look <laughs> I mean, things should look a lot better if I'm, if I'm really a perfectionist. So, uh, but I, my mother, uh, my grandmother, I think it's generational. Like, I remember my grandmother, this is in the 70s, like, I'd be eating uh, cantaloupe with cottage cheese in it, and I remember my grandmother saying, is that ice cream, really? I think that's a good idea. And so, like, it's generational, this idea of, um, as a woman, you better be thin. Uh, that, and yet, you also better eat a lot, because, like, that, and that dichotomy is uh, also part of my history. Um, In any event, my mother was a model, so she was very obsessed with her weight. Um, She probably would have been obsessed anyway, but the fact that it, like, affected her employment at a young age, I think, you know, also reinforced that. Um, And, wow, so many things we could say about my mother, but um, (laughs) she... um, she was very beautiful and um, and very invested in her beauty and uh, and gosh didn't mean to even bring that up. So I was, we were in New York City and uh, 
basically, I, I think I have to say that the, like, the significant, the inciting incident, if you will, I was molested when I was eight um, by a stranger on the street, da 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 I should have known better, all the molest reactions that we have. And, um, and so we moved to Connecticut. And, uh, and so then I was like the New Yorker in Connecticut. And all this to say that um, how it manifests is I, I ate a lot. Of, I binge. I'm a binge eater. I just remember eating frozen carrot cake like out of the freezer at night. I definitely, from a very young age, um, used food. I guess I should also say that I almost died when I was born. I do think that's relevant um, because I was in an ice. I, I was... Uh, couldn't breathe, and so I was in an isolator, inky, whatever the hell they used back then to keep a kid safe, at, for like a year. And I do think that matters because, like, I was in a plastic cage. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, I'm kind of always felt a little bit cut off from the world. And I think that maybe is relevant. So, um, anyway, uh, so I was a binge eater um, and always felt other. So, again, not so unique to a compulsory eater addict personality to feel out to other, you know, find the ways that were other. Um, in my case, I was actually other because it was like Connecticut now in the 80s and there weren't that many Jews, or at least we didn't really associate with Jews. So there was, come to find out, a Jewish population in Connecticut. Uh, we did not access them. We... Uh, uh, yeah, we were in, we lived near Martha Stewart. Not kidding, right near Martha Stewart in that town, Greens Farms. Uh, so anyway, other right, other. Then I went to college, and I was even more other because I decided to go to a school that was even more uh, non-Jew friendly. And um, I don't even like making Jewish jokes. So now, like, I'm embarrassed that I've said that so many times. But that's just the truth. It was the New England kind of pilgrims were here first kind of vibe and uh, and also uh, important that um, so when I was in high school I was like the fat smart girl um, in my mind anyway and um, I did not want to be that in college I was like I'm not going to be that I'm not going to be that. So I went to school where there was no way I could be the smart girl because everyone was way smarter. So that was a relief. But then also um, I like went on, I went on like a program and it actually wasn't, it wasn't a way, but it also wasn't like a diet. It was like the first time there were connections made between what are you thinking? What are you feeling when you're eating? Which was kind of progressive for the time. Anyway, I did get to college and was like, pretty and that um turned out to be really boring like i just was like really is this the game like i just sit here i'm supposed to be pretty it's so stupid <laughs> so um so that didn't last so then i started binging and swimming and i'm like an exercise person i really do still love to exercise so okay so then i came to new york to um work for a director it was a ton of pressure and um, I started drinking, okay, sidebar, um, and uh, basically living on popcorn. <laughs> Interesting choice. Uh, and so then I got really sick. So um, there's waiting tables and dance, dance, working out waiting tables, not eating, just popcorn, drinking, and ultimately got this virus. <sighs> and why this is relevant is because we've just gone through a pandemic. So I had the call back when I got the pandemic to 1989. 
Um, I didn't get the pandemic. When I got COVID and was leveled once again, I hadn't had that experience since 1989 when I was leveled. And that was the beginning of my spiritual experience. Like, I wasn't raised with any religion. There, there was nothing. Um, I do remember being on the road and my father say, and saying, you know, it was like the year before, it was like this time of the year. And, my, and I'm saying, like, I'm in Texas. Like, I don't, there's no temple. Forget it. And my father said, well, a place of worship is in your heart. I thought that was pretty cool. I think he figured that out when he was in the Army. Um, in any event, uh, so I got that virus, started wandering around, like looking for spiritual connection, and then uh, had $500 and moved to Los Angeles after I got better. I know, that's funny, right? But that's who I was. I was like, $500? Sure. So I, I came out here, I had $500, I got a car, I talked them into selling me a car with no job. And uh, started my life here. And basically, I was um, living in one room on Fountain and Laurel on a futon and eating popcorn. Consistent theme of my life would be popcorn. And I was staring at the wall and eating popcorn. And I had one friend, Barbara, she's in this program, and she said, I think that maybe you need some help. I go to this thing called Overeaters Anonymous you should come and I was like oh yeah that is never going to happen like I am never walking into a place that was so uncreative to call itself over eaters and eaters. like really um, and so so she said okay well it was Friday she said okay well what are you doing now and I was like well I'm eating popcorn and staring at the wall <laughs> and she said alright well come with me uh, meet me at Figaro Cafe for the, for the old timers, Figaro Cafe. So I thought, all right, I can do that. And so I met her, and it was like uh, an eating disorder mecca. She was like, hi, hi, hi. Everyone eating steamed vegetables and brown rice. And, and then, I guess, going over to Stallions at Cedars. And she said, will you go with me to do to Overs and Arms now? And I was like, oh, I, I have a very big appointment with my wall. So, uh, but I was like, okay, 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 what the heck, I'll go. So I go, and like, it was life-changing. It was, uh, it was not whiny women talking about calories or trying to be beautiful. It was two male speakers, really articulate, talking about their spiritual journey, and it was like crazy to me and it was like 400 people at least in my mind it was like 400 people and then they said that any newcomers and I leaned over and searched for something in my purse <laughs> which I don't even know why I had a purse I probably didn't even have a purse I was probably like miming a purse under the table um, and so then I, w I went home and there was another meeting this meeting this kitchen sink meeting back when it was on Robertson and Melrose and I was like, well, I have nothing to do. I'll go to that. So I went, and again, it was this amazing speaker. It was like so smart and talking about their spiritual path. And I, and as food was way in, and I was like, this is crazy. I think that I will join this cult. <laughs> um, and 
I, I, ha- I only say that. It's not a cult, America. Um, I'm just saying this because I've, this is only my second in-person meeting since COVID. And, um, and the first one was this meeting and all the chairs were six feet apart and everybody had a mask on. And okay, it did feel like a cult. Like that was kind of crazy. But anyway, uh, okay, so yeah, so I was totally in. I was totally in. I was in actress. That's how old I am. It was still called actress back then. And those er- my headshots from that period, I look like one of those like stand up and cheer America people. Like I'm so happy. Like you can just feel like I had never, um, never experienced joy until I came in this program. I didn't. That was like for stupid people. Like, why are they so happy? Um, and then I had the experience of working with a sponsor who like gave me all this time, and I didn't understand. I was like, Am I paying you? What is going on? Um, and just the whole idea of the generosity and um, this, you know, spiritual experience, like truly a spiritual experience, was so foreign to me and uh, so amazing. So. That, um, you know, that's kind of the setup. I don't know. Then it's like 30 years later, right? Um, and where did those 30 years go? Uh, you know, I haven't had a perfect abstinence. I wasn't struck abstinent. Um, I can, it continues to evolve. Uh, I, this abstinence is, I think, like eight years Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, I've been through a lot. Uh, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and I was uh, I got the call two hours before he was going to die and they said you know he has two hours which is amazing that they can, I can do that Ooh, I'm sorry cut the swear words um, uh, and I so I was abstinent and sober and in my own bed to get that phone call and I remember I had like a, a really abstinent meal the night before I have no idea why um, but that pretty much, that was 28 years ago. And that really, I was like, okay, so now I have to go to OA the rest of my life. Because, like, that was a miracle. And I was with him the moment that he died. Fully present to the whole experience. And so grateful for that. Um, I found someone to marry me. Crazy town. Or even that I would be married was crazy. I was not really a married kind of person. Um, and we're still married, and it'll be 21 years if, you know, we make it through October. And, um, and it's not an easy marriage. I don't have an easy marriage. Uh, he's not easy. I'm not easy. But we both continue to show up, and he's... Um, he totally was like telling me all the things I should say this morning. Like he's really into program. Um, so that's great. Uh, okay. Oh, so what else? So yeah. So so then I had a miscarriage. I like to hit the greatest hits here. I haven't led in a long time, but so I had a miscarriage. Um, that was really painful and sad, and I was fully present for that. And then I went through fertility to have my second baby because I had a. I forgot to say I had a baby in there and that was amazing like that was life-changing for me um just I don't know I never thought that I was supposed to be a mother as my mother used to say you know Danny doesn't take care of a plant Uh, 
Yeah, and she'd say that to my date. Um, but the point is that I didn't know I had a maternal instinct until I saw my baby, my first baby. And then I had to have another one right away. He's got to do everything compulsive. Got to have five now. I need five at the seven. But I was 40. So then I uh, had the miscarriage, and then I went through fertility. And I remember, uh, like, feeling like, thank God that I know that I have to, like, I do the footwork, and I turn the results over to God. Because, thank God, I had all that training to know that this is the way this um, is going to roll. And I was very, very blessed to have my second child. Um, Okay, so then... Uh, my mother got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So I know it's crazy, crazy life, rich, rich life. Um, and she was living in New York. And, uh, and so I brought her to Los Angeles. And that was an interesting plane ride because uh, she was advanced Alzheimer's. And you have to time the drugs with the diaper, with the whole thing. Um, and, but we made it. And, uh, and then uh, I realized I really wanted to be able to make her laugh. And I couldn't. And so I hired someone to make her laugh, and that kind of changed the trajectory of my whole work life as well. Um, and what else can I tell you? I, even though I'm 33 years in, I do a 10th step most nights. I have a sponsor. It took me, um, you know, 30 years to find a sponsor that I feel completely in tune with. She's so generous. And um, and also, like, really big book person, text person. Um, uh, so I'm so grateful for that. Uh, yeah, I have two teenage boys um, and one minute, five minutes, perfect. And uh, last year, um, it was clear that he had some issues of his own that needed to be addressed, and it was incredibly humbling and uh, sobering and you know I so don't want to break his anonymity but I will say that um, my having my life experience uh, was a real gift and um, super grateful super super grateful for that Um, my mother did die uh, two and a half years ago I was um, fully present abstinent sober with her for that um, again that's you know it was very hard and um, so basically I'm never leaving here um, I zoom has been I've been really impressed uh, that that all of the 12 steps adapted like boom all right we're going on zoom now okay like and now you know we're figuring out how to be back in person the value of being in person the value of being able to just not be in person if you're, but still connect. Um, I do think ultimately it's a good thing because we're able to reach so many more people. Uh, but it isn't the same as sitting here and seeing people and uh, having them nod their heads. You don't quite get that on the Zoom thing. Um, and yeah, what else can I say? I'm uh, I'm pretty uh, humble by all of this. It's not, I guess the thing that I would want to impart most is that it's not perfect. It's not a perfect program, but um, when I feel compelled to compulsively overeat, 
I, I, I'm, so, I'm so hip to who I am that um, I will go to a meeting, pick up the phone. Um, I think that, that if there's any downside to having been in a program 33 years and having authenticity be the most important thing in my life, it's that not everybody feels that way. <laughs> not everybody is interested in being their most authentic self. They're not interested in hearing my most authentic self. Uh, people take a lot of comfort in not revealing. So to be someone who's, you know, so out there, there's probably been a cost for that. Uh, not a big cost, but a cost. Um, you know, I definitely still have my challenges. So I'm grateful that I uh, can be, my instinct is not to go to God even all these years later. My instinct is to figure it out and make it my fault. Whatever it is, it's my fault. And so I, I guess when people say they're a grateful recovering person, that I am, my, my struggle in, with overeating, undereating, body obsession, uh, keeps me going to God, which keeps the relationship there for when I need it, if that makes sense. So, uh, so I am grateful for that. I'm super grateful that, I, that this program exists, I, and, and I'm reminded of that. I still um, can get hopeless. It's my nature. I don't know, maybe my uh, past trauma or generational trauma um, and I don't want to make, I did Ancestry.com and I'm a hundred percent Russian Jew. I'm just saying like there could be some trauma from generations of that, even though I don't want to say that because I don't want to put that out in the world. But so I still have those, that's going to be my impulse and thank goodness there's a place I can go and people I can call and I don't have to self-destruct if I don't want to, um, if I am willing to take some actions. And so if you're new, uh, keep coming back because you will learn tools so that you don't have to pick up food, be miserable, obsess about your body, obsess about yourself even, which is a really wonderful gift. So I think I will close on that. Thank you for letting me have service. I look forward to you. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Please restate the question after it is okay. And I get a five-minute warning. Yes. Thank you. Um, is there a, a passage or a part in the big book that particularly resonates with you? Okay, thank you. The question is, is there a passage that particularly resonates? Uh, I'm just going to say 417, page 417, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Um, because I uh, was actually struggling this week and texted my sponsor, and she said to me, 417. So it's very 
prevalent in my mind. I also really like, I don't know that it's specific to, it's probably not in the big book, but I really like the set-aside prayer, which I cannot recite to you in this moment, but uh, it's, uh, you know, help me set aside everything I think I know. That's very good for people who think they know everything. So, yeah, that's, that's what I would say, yeah. Um, what are some of the tools and other things you did to stay abstinent through things like miscarriage and other experiences you've had in the past? Oh, okay. Wow, I forgot how hard this is going to be. Okay. Uh, I have to be some kind of scholar. All right, so what, the question is, what uh, do I do through difficult tools? What tools do I do through difficult times? Um, uh, the first thing that came to mind, for some reason, was a hot bath, but I don't think that's in the literature. Um, uh, I, I really uh, appreciate that self-care. Um, and then probably uh, finding people, making outreach calls to people who uh, have had the experience and gotten to the other side. And, um, and hopefully even have a sense of humor about it. I'm big on a sense of humor as lending perspective. So being willing to make outreach calls. I mean, another great tool is writing. Um, I write like professionally, so sometimes it's hard to write in that way that, you know, you just bleh. Also, I'm always afraid that someone's going to read my writing, like if I got hit by a car and they went through my stuff and then they find all this and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So, uh, so it's good if you're going to use the tool of writing and you struggle with that uh, to hand write and then rip it up. <laughs> but because it is cathartic, like writing is just a really wonderful tool, uh, stream of consciousness writing. Um, and then when it's really bad and I need the big guns, I get on my knees and I really ask God. I have really done that recently where I, and I know it works. I don't know why it works, but when you have the humility to really get on your knees and say, God, I'm out. I do not know how to do this next whatever. I don't know the clouds part and you end up standing up and something shifts and so that's that's a really big one for me too so you mentioned that you did have a perfect absence but so what is perfect absence oh um uh, what is perfect abstinence well when i came in perfect abstinence was three meals a day two snacks uh and you know Probably no sugar, no flour, no, uh, no, like not nothing sustainable. Uh, so I think uh, that was my idea of perfect abstinence. Um, I think what I was saying there is like I can still because someone's talking about food. I can still eat like a bag of granola. Like I'm still capable of doing that. So that would not be defined as eating in a way that's moving toward a healthy body weight. <laughs> like that's just using, that's still using food for comfort. And so that to me feels like not a perfect abstinence. Um, but for me, I don't throw up no matter what. Like I do not, I will not go back there. So, um, so that's my 
I guess that's my perfect abstinence now. But I think, um, you know, sane and guilt-free eating, that was another definition that was around for a while, apparently making people laugh about that. (laughs) But that would be a goal, sane and guilt-free eating. It doesn't feel sane to eat an entire bag of granola that your son bought and now he's left for college and you're sad and so you're going to eat his entire bag of granola. That wouldn't be sane and guilt-free eating. That would be using food for comfort. But, you know, uh, that's what I mean. It's not, it's not perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, good to see you. Uh, could you tell me um, what your relationships are like today versus the way they were before in terms of your availability for vulnerability? Wonderful question. Uh, the question is, um, how have my relationships been affected in terms of vulnerability uh, as a result of the program? So, so it's so funny you should ask that because I was thinking about this. So um, I, 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 when I do 10 step at night, it's like a format, and then it says, you know, were, did, you, were, did you do anything wrong, and did you promptly admit, blah, blah, blah. when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. So this is just funny, because, uh, so we did uh, a renovation, a sentence I never thought I'd say, but whatever, we needed a bigger kitchen, and, or we needed a kitchen that didn't feel like oppressive, so we knocked down a wall. And the guy, you know, the contractor, okay, so they have a little, you know, interpretation of truth that is not enough. <laughs> so, so there was some challenges with that. And I, uh, and he had said for like the 20th time, quoted me as saying something I never said. And then, um, and then I said, well, I never said that and I never did that and texted this, right? Well, turns out I had said this one time, I had said what he said I said. And, and I was rude to him when he accused So then I was so upset and I'm like crying to my husband. No, we need to call him immediately and I need to apologize immediately for being rude to him because I was wrong. And I, and, and I, and, you know, um, when we were wrong, we promptly admitted it. That's my life. Like, I'm like, you know, you over a guy I'll never see again and like, like thinking it was over like paint or something, you know, but it was like that, like the principles of this program are so woven into who I am at this point. And so when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, like I can't sleep at night if I don't do that. And I, I'm sure I learned that here. I don't think I learned that in my, in my family. Um, so yeah, I uh, I think that, and I try to be of service as much as I can, which is a completely foreign concept in my family of origin. Um, yeah, there was no service. There was no no service. Like, um, and so I think that affects my relationships. I think my willingness to take, especially in a marriage, like I do have to take responsibility for you know, that I might be a challenging person to live with. I, I don't know. Perhaps. Um, and I have to uh, own that whenever I can. I try to own that whenever I can. 
So I think that's um, all stuff. And that is very vulnerable, you know, to say, I'm sorry, and to say, yeah, I'm a little bit nuts about X, Y, Z, whatever that is. Um, it, you know, it is vulnerable to do that. Um, and even with my kid, raising kids, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't been a perfect mother. So, but what I try to do is when I don't um, act in a way that I, it is representative of how I want to be in the world, I will tell my kids, hey, that was mom being a little bit wackadoodly do, and uh, I'm sorry. So hopefully that'll keep them out of like one year left of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> one, one year left. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to piggyback on a relationship question. Have you ever been baffled by? whether recovery is to cut someone out of your life or recovery is to continue to work through challenges with that person? No, never. (laughs) Never. Um, Of course, of course, of course. You know, I think it it just reminds me of like when I was a waitress and I was... um, Toward the end of my waitressing career, I was crying in the bathroom every shift. And I finally just was like, I don't think this is what God wants for me. So I think that's true of relationships. I think if you're upset more than not, and you've really done the work on yourself to be... uh, to have self-awareness about your part and you're still upset, uh, then it's probably time to let something go. You know, we're not here to be upset. We're not here to be upset. I don't think we're here to be upset. And so if something is upsetting, for whatever reason, there might not be anyone at fault. Um, it's just too upsetting, whatever, your personalities, your histories, your way of being in the world is at odds and uncomfortable for one or both of you, you know, that's, I don't think that's what God wants for us. So to the extent that you're able to, um, I think you have to let things go. Uh, so funny. Um, I, uh, when my mother was very sick, uh, people, there were a few people who would say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to remember her the way she is. I, I don't need to, you know, I'm not going to come see her kind of thing. And one of them was my first cousin. And, um, and so my feeling, like, I, okay, well, you've revealed who you are. Congratulations that that works for you. But I don't have to have that in my life. Like, which is tough, and I may live to regret that. But um, I don't know. I think we... we Learn about who we are. What do we not want to compulse? Like, if somebody's going to make me or give me the impulse to compulsively overeat, to, to, to find comfort and peace, then that's not a relationship that I should engage in because it's not in anybody's best interest. I don't know. I'm no expert. Yes. Uh, hi. Um... Could you talk a little bit about your second and third step journey in terms of, you know, was it difficult for you to access your spiritual side given how you were raised? Was it very seamless or, you know, was that what that process was like for you to turn it over to something bigger than yourself? 
so the question is uh, my second and third step journey, which is um, thank you. Uh, made a de- three is made a decision. Became willing to admit that three made a decision. Um, <coughs> that was probably hard to follow on the podcast. Um, but what I let's see. So I've always been a spiritual. I had always been a spiritual seeker. I was in theaters my whole life, and my whole young adult life was about being in a dark space and uh, feeling uh, um, safe, emotionally safe. And um, and so for me, and I had no religious upbringing, so for me, um, coming into program and hearing. And, and being given permission to turn it over that everything wasn't my responsibility was a relief initially. Um, and so it wasn't hard for me. I wasn't overcoming a punitive God and, or any of that. I, didn't, I came in pretty blank slate that mm-hmm. way. Um, but I would say over the years, I always want to take my will back because it's always my fault. I don't know. It doesn't even matter what it is. It's somehow it's my fault. And that is not faith. That is not belief in a higher power. That is self-will run riot. Um, so it's an ongoing process for me. Even though initially I didn't have that big struggle of like, forget it, I'm an atheist or whatever. God is bad. I didn't have to overcome anything initially, but it is an ongoing always an ongoing process like I feel like I'm like this rubber band and you know I stretch it to allow uh, more light and and higher power into my life to the extent that I work the program and when I don't like the rubber band goes back Um, and uh, and so it's an ongoing I have to be in three I have to make a decision it's making a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. That's, uh, I have to make that decision. It's an action. Thank you. Yes? Hi, thank you. Uh, you said you were a creator. How did you uh, find the balance between being creative and you know, not falling into your addiction? Did that grow over time? And, you know, what was your hmm. process like in the tools that you used to balance so the question is, how do you balance your creativity and your eating disorder, essentially? Um, I would say that um, I, go to a, I go to a meeting probably every day, especially when I'm in writing mode. I, I really feel it's helpful. And now we can, of course, go to meetings every day on Zoom. <laughs> so that's really helpful. I definitely know that when I'm writing, um, protein bars seem really good. Like, that's what I should be doing right now. Not writing. I should be eating a protein bar or five. Um, and so it's, um, it, it is somewhat of a discipline and, um, and then picking up the tools. So it's an isolating life to be a writer for the most part, unless you're in a room. Um, and so you have to have your uh, safeguards in place. And um, I pick up other tools, go for a walk, go, uh, put on music and dance around the house. Like just recognizing that my first impulse is always going to be to 
find something to chew. Um, so what am I? What is my list of distractions from that? Um, when I feel, you know, can't face the blank page, just can't. You know, um, another trick is just writing. I can't face the blank page. That's kind of my favorite. To just because eventually you get bored writing that, and then you write something else. So <clears throat> I think really just self-awareness and willingness. That that's it. You know, this is who I am. So what am I? What actions can I take to protect myself from me, from my worst instincts? Um, so yeah, that's my thought on that. We have time for, I guess, for one more. 21 seconds. Um, Well, thank you for letting me be of service. Uh, This is like graduate school today. Oh, my God.